0: Hi folks, Chris Voss here from the Show dot com the Show dot com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in once again, we have made another podcast. We're just tromping our way to a thousand podcasts here. one podcast at a time. that's how we work here on the Chris Foss show. We tried doing two podcasts at a time. it didn't work because we had too many screens and too many guests, and we couldn't figure out who we were talking to, including ourselves at the time. <laughs> we didn't do that. Anyway, guys, go to YouTube.com for just Chris Voss, hit the bell notification button, go to all the uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all those different places that we have the Chris Voss show. Just search for them. You'll find the groups and everything over there. Go to Goodreads.com for slash Chris Voss and uh, you can see we're reading or viewing over there. This is going to be an interesting discussion we're going to have for a lot of different reasons. Not only is the author brilliant, the book is brilliant, but uh, it's very topical for what's going on today's wage market, job market, if you will, post coronavirus. The book is the case for a maximum wage. The book is by Sam Bisgotti. And uh, he's on the show with us today. I like the Italian version of his thing. Of course I'm on a diet right now. I was telling him in the green room. So now I just have pizza on the my mouth. If you hear my belly doing hunger gurgles or whatever, yeah that's my stomach on a diet. But I've lost 53 pounds, so I'm doing pretty good. Anyway, let's let me tell you about Sam. Sam is an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. He currently co-edits Inequality.org, the online world's prime portal to issues around maldistributed income and wealth. He has written extensively on economic divides with articles and op-eds appearing worldwide in outlets ranging from The New York Times and The Guardian to Le Monde Diplomatique. He, he has actually authored four books on income and wealth inequality and co-edited another. His most recent book, this one we'll be talking about today, appeared in 2018. He's a veteran labor journalist. He spent 20 years directing the publishing of America's largest trade union, the 3.1 million member National Education Association. Welcome to the show, Sam. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Awesome, Sauce. Give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. The best place would be at inequality.org.
1: That's the website that we have that features the writing and the re- research that we've been doing.
0: Awesome, Sauce. So what motivated you want to write this book? I
1: think well, when I look back on my life, I grew up on uh, Long Island, right next door to, to Levittown. And Levittown in the 1950s, when I was a kid, was the center of the emerging new American middle class. And the United States at that time, we did something very special. We created the first society in human history where the majority of people had disposable income after they paid off their rent and their food and their basic necessities. We created the first mass middle class society in world history. That was something special. And it was a society that we created because we narrowed the divide between the very rich and everybody else. And unfortunately, that great achievement that we made in the middle of the 20th century, the the, the achievement we made when I was a kid, by the time I was an adult, that achievement had essentially been dissipated. And I've been working ever since trying to remake that equality that we had in the middle of the 20th century.
0: A lot of people have been trying to get back to that golden age of income. I mean, there's some different aspects that went into it. The war, people had all their money in savings from the war, their war bonds. You had the returning GIs that came home with the GI Bill. So there's a lot of different makeup to that sort of thing. Give us an overarching plug about the book. What's inside?
1: I I think we all recognize, or most all of us, that if you're going to have a decent society, you need a wage floor you need a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Um, that you can't have decency without a minimum wage. But I think what this book argues and and what I've been arguing other folks have been arguing is that by the same token, we need a ceiling if we want to have a decent society. We need a ceiling on income that we can't let income and wealth just continue to concentrate in the pockets of a precious few people. And if we do that, if we allow that concentration to take place, we're asking for trouble. We're asking trouble in our democracy. We're asking for trouble in our economy. We're asking for trouble in in, in every aspect of our life. And this book, um, The uh, Case for a Maximum Wage, tries to speak to that problem that we're facing now.
0: That's interesting. Right now, there's a lot of things going on with the news, with the coronavirus and everything else. How do you define a maximum wage? Because I guess one of the problems that has been going on for a long time is wages have been stagnant for so long. But what is a maximum wage, according to your book?
1: Let's go back to Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt proposed a maximum wage, a maximum income. In 1942, at the beginning of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt proposed that all income over $25,000 be subject to a 100% tax. Now, $25,000 in 1942 equals about $400,000 uh, today. So that was the maximum wage that, that FDR proposed. That was the threshold for a 100% um, top tax rate. Now, Congress did not pass that nine, that 100% um, top tax rate that FDR asked for. But Congress did pass legislation th- the next year that created a 94% tax rate on income, individual income, over $200,000 tax rate that, that our top tax rate hovered around 90% for the next 20 years. And those were the years where we saw the birth of the mass American middle class.
0: And yeah, I've, and I've seen the uh, graphs, I believe, that show the taxation rates being reduced by the ultra rich, the top 1%, as Bernie would say, I don't know, that's a horrible Bernie impression, but, <laughs> but you've seen the decline of it to the point recently, there was some data leaked. There was some IRS stuff that was leaked that, that showed that these rich people aren't paying any taxes. Their corporations don't pay any taxes. They, they really don't put much into the, you, you can't say they don't put much in the tax base. They do have employees and they pay in through that, through their various things. Would self, Would people like Jeff Bezos or entrepreneurs be subject to the maximum wage you propose?
1: Yes, because it would be tied not to the, the paycheck, but to the income. And so w- what we're proposing is a maximum level, uh, a, th- a maximum threshold tied to the minimum wage. So let's say in FDR talked about a specific figure, $400,000 in today's inflation-adjusted terms. But what if we set that to the minimum wage? What if we said that all income over... 100 or 50 or 25 times the minimum wage was subject to 100% tax. If we did that, then the richest and most powerful people in our country, people like Jeff Bezos, would have a vested personal interest in increasing the minimum wage because the higher the minimum wage went, then the higher that maximum level, that maximum threshold would be. And I think that would be a healthy dynamic for our society. What
0: you're proposing is there's a block range or something. I don't know what the correct term would be, but that's, that, that's scalable or adjustable and, and it moves as a block?
1: Yes, that we have a multiple, we have a ratio, and that ratio determines what the maximum wage would be. And that maximum would be tied to the minimum wage.
0: Oh, wow. So basically, he could make more than that, but anything that he made more than that would be just worthless, wouldn't it? We've had some authors that have come on the, the show And one of the things that these guys do that they have access to that, that a lot of people don't is high paid attorneys and tax accountants and, and, these guys who can they can figure any they can they can find any gleam of light in any tax law to skirt the laws or park money off shores, et cetera, et cetera how do we deal with that?
1: in the middle of the twentieth century, the rich tried all sorts of things to get around paying their taxes. but what we found was that the the federal government when it was serious about going after those tax loopholes, did a fairly good job of closing those loopholes um, one after one after another. There was one exception, one huge exception, and that was the um, big oil, the oil industry. In 1982, Forbes did its first list of the 400 richest Americans. On the top 10 of those rich, eight of them were big oil because of the oil depletion allowance and other tax breaks that that the oil industry had. And the oil industry had two very powerful people, Lyndon Johnson, who at that time was the head of the Senate, and Sam Rayburn, who is the Speaker of the House. So they had an insurance policy against filling those, uh, plugging those tax um, loopholes, and that created this big oil rich, and that big oil rich financed campaigns against that 91% T- t- tax rate that we had back then and eventually prevailed and started us down the road to the unequal society that we have today.
0: Oh, wow. So would this is this anti-capitalism? How would you describe this? Because some people, they start throwing around words like socialism, capitalism. Is this anti- capitalism or how do you how do you think the approach on it
1: i think it's pro-middle class i think it's pro-fight against poverty i think it's about building a better society so you can put whatever label you'd like to 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 put on that this Mm -hmm. doesn't say how our, our, our enterprises should be organized all it says is that a few people, a precious few people, would not be able to grab an outsized share of the rewards that an economy creates.
0: Now, what will what be the difference? Does this maximizing the wage does that make it so that people won't aspire to as much like i said is that is that anti is that anti an in income is that going right. to penalize success for capitalism
1: that, that's the argument uh, the argument is that if people can't get really rich then they're not going to strive they're not going to create they're not going to do big and wonderful things but here's the reality the, the reality is that the vast majority of us wake up every morning go to work work hard be creative do wonderful things. And we do all this without any expectation that will be, we'll become fabulously rich. So if you take away that possibility of becoming fabulously rich, we're still going to work hard. We're still going to be creative. We're still going to make a positive contribution. But the fact is that there are some people who are driven by the need to become fabulously rich. And if you look at these people, what do they do? They shortchange their family, Their bosses and companies, they exploit their workers. Maybe they cheat consumers. Maybe they play fast and loose with environmental regulations. They do everything um, to make a buck. They can cause great damage in their haste to make uh, a buck. So a maximum wage would say to these people listen, there's a lot more to life than making lots of money. And I think that'd be a very positive message for our society to send.
0: So why not just raise the minimum wage and not really do the maximum wage thing? What what's the benefits of doing it this way as opposed to just raising the minimum wage in and of itself uh, with a law? Well-
1: the problem is that the minimum wage hasn't been raising. So if we've, been cre- we've been creating all this new wealth. All this new wealth has gone to the top and precious little of it has gone to the minimum wage. And the problem is if we let wealth concentrate at the top, political power is going to concentrate at the top too. And people in the very rich, in the billionaire class are going to have the power um, to keep the minimum wage low because the, the lower the minimum wage, the, the more... The more wealth, the more income pours into the pockets of of the super rich.
0: So, without extremely rich people, would we still have extremely rich people like the Jeff Bezos in the world? Or would they just be like, I'm not going to work that hard? Or I don't know, maybe they go to another country that might have. The, The problem with a lot of these billionaires, they're pan globalists. They don't give a crap about democracy or anything anymore. They just. All they That's care is they actually like governments that will let them do whatever they want. That's right. And they, they do their best to to bring those governments into effect.
1: But clearly, if we move in this direction of, of, of a maximum wage, we would hope and we would expect other nations to move into this direction right now. Currently, the United States is by far the most unequal developed country in the world. And let let me just give you one example. Researchers at the Swiss bank Credit Suisse do a global wealth report every year. Earlier this week, the latest report just um, came out. In the United States, The top 1% of folks in the United States now holds over 35% of the wealth in the United States. In Japan, the top 1% only holds 18% of the wealth of the country. In France, it's 20. In the UK, I think it's 22%. So we are fundamentally significantly more top heavy than other nations in the world.
0: Yeah, we definitely have some issues. I, I think yesterday we were talking about one with one of our authors and we turned it to rogue capitalism, unbridled capitalism, unfettered capitalism. It seems like capitalism is really out of control in our country. And I'm a capitalist. I'm an, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 18. I believe in it, but the minimum wage definitely is something uh, that I need to. Uh, sea raised and everything else, what do you think about what 's going on right now? I was driving around yesterday over in some industrial centers, going to my storage unit that I have up here and I noticed lots of signs out front of these. It was like in a, what what do you call them? Industrial complex, industrial off area. Signs were all over. We pay 15 plus an hour, like somewhere $15 and 60 cents. I guess they (laughs) throw an extra 60 cents in there or something. And uh, Biden, I believe, just talked yesterday the day before about companies complaining about how they got to pay $15 an hour. And he's good. It's about time that people are getting paid more. And the, the market It's interesting. The market seems to be not really fixing itself. I don't know how permanent it is, but fixing itself. You're not going to be able to claw back that $15 an hour and put back people back to 10 when the market changes, which I'm not sure. What do you think about those forces that are going on the market? Can the market fix itself or does it really need legislation at this point? I think it really needs
1: legislation at this point. The fifteen dollars minimum wage that's be beginning to come in now um, is nowhere near. Is still nowhere near what, what what a family really needs to support itself. We need to change the political calculus in the country in this country. Right now, that calculus is is o- overwhelmingly tilted, overwhelmingly rigged um, on behalf of um, people with uh, with with wealth. And power. And we, we've got to change that. And it won't change as long as we let that wealth and power remain concentrated in, in a precious few hands.
0: Definitely, it's uh, it's definitely tough. What is the minimum wage? Do you think that that what, what do you think the minimum wage should be right now for what's going on in the world and, and how? If
1: you look at researchers who look at uh, a family of four, what a budget should be so that there's a, at least a minimal level of decency for that family, then you're talking about a minimum wage of twenty five dollars uh, an hour somewhere in that uh, twenty five.
0: An hour, yeah.
1: Huh. Um, wow. So significantly more than we than we have right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. twenty five dollars an hour. That's quite a jump. Because I think up until recently it was like ten, but now fifteen seems to be the standard. And you're right. you're seeing all it, you know, this.
1: That the legal minimum wage is still seven twenty five. <laughs> oh, is it really? It's the federal minimum wage is still seven twenty five.
0: Uh, that is brutal, man. I don't even know how. What is that per month? Seven dollars per month times uh what forty? So that would be two eighty times four. So basically you could just call it twelve hundred bucks, maybe. You know, roughly rounding up a little bit, I think. Jesus. And that's before taxes.
1: It's, it's ridiculous. And it's a disgrace that our country is like that. And and the shame is that our country was not like this. You know, 50, half century ago, we were on a different trajectory. We were on a trajectory to provide decency for, for all American working families. And we've gotten off that trajectory as we've let wealth concentrate.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really important that we change these laws. What do you think about what's going on with this new poverty system the Biden administration has there? I think in July, they start attacking child poverty. They're sending out checks to people that have kids and stuff. I'm all for it. I, we need to fix poverty in families and children. I'm a little bent because I'm a single guy all my life and I pay the highest taxes of anybody <laughs> and I'd like a check hello I might go adopt some kids after this I don't know I'm just kidding but what do you think about that program and its contribution to, to maybe helping fight some of this poverty that,
1: I, I think it's certainly a step in the, step in the right direction but mm-hmm. it still leaves us considerably behind other developed nations in, in Europe um, and in Canada which have much Uh, systems that are much more friendly to to working families and don't allow the sort of poverty that we allow in this country. So we're moving in the right direction, but we have so much more to go, and we're not going to get to where we need to be as long as we face the obstacle um, of this super rich at the top, um, which has so much political power in our country.
0: Definitely, it really does. When it, when it comes down to it, the what are some other aspects we haven't covered about your book? I'm thinking.
1: I, I, I think that there's another aspect um, of this: of the negative impact of concentrated wealth that doesn't get talked about much, and that's the the aspect of consumerism that in every society, the wealthiest, the affluent people set the consumption bar. They establish you now this is what you need to have. to to be successful in life. So the affluent people set that bar. Now, if you have an equal society and the most affluent people are not that much more affluent, not that much richer than the vast majority of the population, then that bar that they set can be reachable. But if you have a society like ours, when the most affluent are many times more affluent, More rich than average people. That then that consumption bar that defines what um, success in life is much higher than people where people are at. So what do people do? They feel the social pressure. They feel like failures because they're not anywhere close to that that consumption bar that defines success. Maybe they go deeply in debt to buy the things that signal that they have matched that that consumption standard. But So in other words, when we allow the wealthy to separate themselves out from the rest of the society, we're creating all sorts of social pressures that go beyond politics, that go beyond economics, that really undercut the, the quality of lives that, that we're all living. If we have a more equal society, we'll have a less stressful society. And, and we'll also have a more, the, the, the less stress we have in our society, the more health we'll have in our society. and Because stress and health are very closely interrelated.
0: Now, when you're saying equality, you're going to have people that are going to start doing that whole communism, uh, socialism aspect. What's the difference or how do you separate that or say this isn't that in this use case? How do you respond to those people? I think just look
1: back in American history, some of those honored people, some of the founders of our country talked about the need to prevent wealth from concentrating at the top. So this isn't some un-American notion. This is something that goes back to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the other notables who, who founded this country. Th- there was a real recognition that we could not let wealth accumulate in a few pockets and expect to have a decent society. And I think the wisdom of those folks has been borne out by the 200 years of our history.
0: Well, we've seen different times in our history, the anti-monopoly, the the monopolists, the RICO, or none. Code, but the anti-monopoly act to fight monopolies although I don't know don't a lot of times those things come about because the government just doesn't want competition from someone who's worth more than they are
1: we have had eras in our country where we've made progress against monopoly power and those movements haven't been you know driven by government bureaucrats they've been driven by popular movements by by working people getting together and pushing for change in our society and by the middle of the 20th century we were able to put together a lot of successful change. And again, that's the, the tragedy of my lifetime that the success, the promise that we showed as a society in the middle of the 20th century, we were going in the right direction. And we've been going in reverse ever since.
0: And with Citizens United, all this some of the Supreme Court Supreme Court decisions have made it so it's so easy to buy the government, so easy to buy politicians, by rich people. It's not even funny. It's actually legal just basically by a politician, which has almost created an oligarchy in this world. In fact, uh, President Jimmy Carter said we are living in an or- oligarchy, so take it from him if you like. What do you say to that? We'd have to somehow overturn some of these Citizens United in different laws. We have this government that's owned by these billionaires and billionaire corporations. How are we ever going to get them on our side to you know make these changes that you propose? its
1: its interesting. you sh- you mentioned um, oligarchs. We—we we just came out at the Institute for Policy Studies. We just came out with a report last um, week about entitled "Silver Spoon Oligarchs." We looked at the wealthiest uh, American families. What we saw was astounding. Uh, in 1982, the Walmart family was worth 2.5 billion dollars. That's a lot of money. That was 1982. Last year. end of last year, that same Walmart clan was worth nearly $250 billion. The the 10 wealthiest oligarchical families in the United States together hold four times the wealth of the bottom half of the American population. I I don't think people realize how strikingly unequal we've become.
0: Mm-hmm. We definitely have the the I, I, it's I don't know is it that people I'm always reminded of that scene in Network the movie Network the famous scene where he talks about how people just get so beaten down being poor they've you know I got my radial tires I got my lazy boy and I want I just want to come home watch my TV I'm sick of everything that's going on I just want you to leave me alone for five seconds and, and let me be in peace and people are so beaten down when you're busy chasing your tail you don't have a lot of time to look up. And go. What are the politicians doing to screw me? And then a lot of people, of course, I'm always just amazed at how people will pick up the the Betsy DeVos billionaire Center for National Policy talking points tropes uh, of how we don't we. It's raising the minimum wage is against whatever. It's uh, against the capitalism, whatever. And you're just like you realize that you're picking up a trope from a billionaire media outlet that that just wants to keep you down and almost enslaved as an indentured servitude. We've seen colleges. It's almost indentured servitude. You get people that are enslaved for up to 20 years. I have friends that are my age. They're just now paying off their college loans. I'm like, holy crap. So it seems like there's a lot of stuff that we need to change in our society. And I don't know, man, we, People just seem to be getting armor and letting whatever happen. Here's
1: the good news. We can do this. We can make this change. And we know we can do it because we've done it before as a nation. Uh, a century ago, at the height of the original Gilded Age, the wealth of the wealthy was even more egregious than, than than it is today Th- their power was even greater than the power of the super rich today but people fought over the course of two generations and they changed that around they made a difference they created a much better society and if mm-hmm. they did that against the odds that they faced then, then why can't we do it and I think James says we can do it um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think we can too. It's just, it's going to take, it was interesting to me to see people like the head of Goldman Sachs start sending up warning shots. I think it was a Davos or a speech he gave where they're like, the, the rich are starting to figure out that they could run into maybe a French Revolution type of eat the rich, pull out the gallows experience if they don't start to being nicer to the indentured servitudes of, of the masses. I thought that was kind of interesting to see that because I'm like, wait, are you saying the quiet part out loud? The, I don't know, what are the odds for this thing happening? Does it have to take some sort of calamity or some sort of crisis or something where, like I said, we have to do a French revolution and people just go take the streets with torches and guillotines and take back their power in their country? Or
1: what what really needs to
0: happen? What steps do we need to take?
1: If something is not done There'll be an explosion of some sort, and that explosion is good for nobody. The French Revolution did not end for French peasants as as well as for some of the nobility who, who who lost their heads. We don't want an explosion. We don't want incredible violence. We don't want we don't want social dislocation on that scale. We want a transition that's peaceful. We want a transition that brings everybody together into a in, 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 into a better society. So we have to address. We have to address the, the problems we're facing, and there are some interesting ways to, to, to go at that. So let's look at one. What's the engine of inequality in the United States today? The engine is the modern American corporation. Fifty years ago, CEOs used to average twenty times more than the pay of their workers, and 2020 major American corporations paid their top executives over 300 times more. Than their than their uh, typical workers. That's a huge engine of inequality that we go uh, that we have now. So what's happened is uh, people are saying, why don't we tie corporate taxation to corporate pay rates? So if a corporation has a wide gap between its top executives and its typical workers, that corporation should pay more in taxes than a corporation that only has a modest gap between top executives and and average workers. The city of Portland actually passed a law along that line three years ago. That's in effect right now. This past November, voters in San Francisco passed a plebiscite along the same line. So San Francisco will shortly be taxing corporations with wide pay gaps at higher rates than other corporations. Mm -hmm. And in Congress, you mentioned Bernie Sanders before. Well, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, my senator, Chris Van Hollen from the state of Maryland are all supporting legislation that would bring that to the federal level. And under this legislation, Walmart would pay $1 billion more a year in taxes, because its pay gap was over 1,000 times to one. Holy crap. So there are other things that we can do along this line. We can say to corporations, you cannot get a government contract if you're pay gap between executive and worker is over 100 times to 1 or over 200 times to 1. You cannot get a federal subsidy if your pay gap is too wide. So, So there are steps that we can take to help build the equality that we need to see in the United States.
0: What's the likelihood of that all going?
1: I think it's not going to go down th- this year, but I think the momentum is definitely in that direction. There, there's strong support in, in Congress for, uh, not majority support, but there is strong support for that. And a number of state legislatures are consider- are considering similar bills. So I think we're going to see a breakthrough at the state or the federal level in in, in the next few years.
0: What's interesting to me is how the market forces are changing it. And this is an anomaly. When you wrote your book, there wasn't this coronavirus thing going on, but this anomaly of what's come out of the coronavirus where workers now seem to have increasingly choice. I'm seeing a lot of choice in their marketplace. One of the things that's driving choice is they've gotten really used to working at home. I've worked at home since 2004. The, they're used to working at home. And so now they can actually shop employers that might want to allow them to continue not work at home. Everyone's woken up and said, hey, that four hours a day I was commuting two hours in two hours out isn't worth it wasn't worth it so why should I bother and so I think it's really interesting and then like I said you're seeing this competition for workers I've seen is it is it really true I've seen people railing on this where they're like places that that, that want that want to go back to the old way of paying. I realize some of them are entrepreneurs, and their business model maybe depends on that lower wage. But it almost seems like we're gonna have to go through a, a almost a hyperinflation or inflationary process to pay for the wages that are being. Put in, and we're already seeing that in the marketplace. Of course, from the debt that we have. See, but uh, I, I, I don't think that's that
1: the, the, the case. There, there is plenty of wealth in corporate America, but that wealth is being siphoned off at the top of the corporate ladder. If we narrow those some um, uh, gaps, if we create better jobs better paying jobs, will have less turnover, we'll have more productive enterprises that will be creating more wealth that can be shared. But the key to that is changing the pay structure within corporations. We can't go on with top executives making hundreds of times more than their workers. In 2018, we did a study. There were 50 corporate CEOs who made over a thousand times the pay of their most typical worker. That's crazy. That's that insanity.
0: is crazy, man. That is insanity. You, if when you watch the rise of Wall Street power, the Ivan Bioski age, if you want to call it, the nineteen eighties. And how suddenly it just became really popular in the rise of Wall Street over what we call Main Street. It became really popular to, hey, you know what? If you want, it's all about your your price of your stock. It's all about raising investor value for investors as opposed to workers. And it's, like, oh, you fired 20,000 workers? Oh, there your stock price goes up. <laughs> oh. One of my uh, friends who's been on the show was the CEO of a public company. And he said, look, I'll tell you one of the dirty secrets. He said this on the show. He said one of the dirty secrets of, of this business is as a corporate CEO, you might have maybe a good two-year two, to two year run, maybe two to three years run. He goes, you don't really want to invest in the future because you don't get any options. They give you options on increasing the stock price as a as a, what do you do? You lay off employees. There's no value given to you. There's no bonuses given to you to care about employees or to try and make their lives better or advance the company that way. Everything that you're given a bonus on is about investor value and the stock price of the company and increasing sales, basically. And he goes, any long term investment R and that you say, hey, let's go, you know, build the next iPad. Very likely, it's not like Steve Jobs were going to be there when it ha- when it lands. You're, you're giving somebody else the benefit, and there's, you just don't care. And so you basically play for the short-term money and the golden parachute out, and then people wonder why we're in the situation we're in. And you can match that arc with the arc of what you said, where there was the rise of CEO pay and the stagnation for 40 years of wage. And uh, and you can arc it with the uh, dissolving of the middle class. and th- The two just, you can just put all that together and it just mixes like uh, beautiful paint. And throw tax rates into that mix. Because until, wh- when did the Ivan Bosky
1: era, the Michael Milken era, when did that really begin? When did that take off? That took off in the early 1980s. What else happened in the early 1980s? the top tax rate the tax rate that the rich paid which was 70 percent top tax rate in 1979 1980 Ronald Reagan elected in 1980 1981 the Ronald Reagan tax act cut the top rate down first to 50% and then 5 years later down to 28% yeah. the, the the rate on top rate and that made that made uh, that, that that was the stimulus for the Michael Milken era, for the Ivan Boski era, that that opened the door to grand fortunes. So people grabbed as much as they could grab and did whatever they needed to do to do that grabbing. If we had a maximum wage in place, that would depress the incentive for that sort of behavior.
0: Yeah. And what's even funny is we did it again during the Trump administration. I mean, we just don't learn. There's no trickle down <laughs> economics. These guys just buy more boats and houses around the world and, And I've known people that work for large companies. They, they help build them, but they're, they're public companies now, but they have nothing better to do but buy houses. Like they make so much money they have 24 houses around the world like they just can't buy enough property for write-offs and they, they go in and they renovate the houses completely turn into basically mansions because they're, everything's about getting that write-off for real estate and everything else and, the, and you know there's there's technically should be nothing wrong with that but you look at who's the the meanwhile some person can't afford to they're living on top ramen. and they've got two or three kids and they can't live what used to be the american dream is the american dream dead in your opinion right now? now uh, i'm sorry just
1: had a technical problem there
0: yeah um, i ask you a loaded of question is the american dream dead right now i part of the american dream is entrepreneurism so maybe it's not dead i i saw a report coming out of i think it was on axios where As opposed to 2008, the collapse of new businesses started, the complete opposite has happened where we've seen a huge jump in new business filings. So maybe the American dream, quote unquote, isn't dead. I don't know. What do you think is the American dream? I
1: think the American dream is under incredible stress th- that we have an economy that is increasingly dominated by major firms that put a squash that squash entrepreneurship. My, my late son used to be in, in the computer industry, and he would talk about going to computer fairs, computer conferences, where the big giants like Microsoft would just come and buy up Good ideas they saw on the uh, conference floor, and then just put those ideas on the shelf because they didn't want the competition that the development of those ideas would have would, would have brought. So, so we have a monopoly that dominated the economy, which is not good for for entrepreneurial um, um, energy. If we had a more equal country, if we had a country where the rich did not have so much power, we'd have a shot of having a more vibrant um, economy where people could would would have the economic security to take risks and go out and try to start new businesses.
0: There you go. Anything more you want to touch on about the book and how it works?
1: I, 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 j- just that, that that I think I think people should feel a sense of hope I amid mean, this very difficult situation that we're in. I amid mean, a situation where the rich seem invincible, that they that the rich always win. That's the the cliche. It's just not true. It's just not true. That if we look at if we look at the history of the last century, the rich didn't always win. Let's keep that in mind. And if we do, I think we can. Be build a much better country
0: hopefully we can get we can get that to work for us <laughs> You got to love it. Got to love it. Uh, Interesting discussion we've had today on your book. Thank you for coming by. Give us your plug so people can find you on the interweb.
1: Inequality.org is the place that where my writing appears along as the writing of a number of my colleagues on income and wealth inequality. We look at the campaigns that people are waging around the country to make our society more equal. We highlight good ideas for new legislation, and see us, um, come and see us there.
0: There you go. There you go. Thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate it and uh, for enlightening us on some of this thing. And hopefully you can educate some people to make some changes, do some different things with uh, our legislatures and demanding more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Guys, check it out. It's uh, the book, The Case for a Minimum Wage by Sam Pizzagatti. And it's been wonderful to have you on the show today, Sam. Thanks, my honest, for tuning in. Go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Voss, hit that bell notification. Go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, follow everything reading and writing over there. Also go to all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those different places that we publish and chat about what we're doing. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.